I'm going to change direction this morning from some of the things we've been doing because of what's been in the news. As you know, um, this picture I took in Jerusalem, standing on the Mount of Olives, looking across the, the valley at the Temple Mount. What you're seeing there, that gold dome, and I know this picture is a little bit fuzzy. What you're seeing, because I was using a long lens, uh, you're seeing the moss, the Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Oh, now I forgot what it means. House of Meditation or something. It's the furthest mosque from Mecca, as it were, originally, built on the very site of Solomon's Temple and of Herod's Temple. The very site. Right over the rock of Mount Moriah is where Arabs built this temple in the early Middle Ages and um, built this mosque. And it's the site of controversy because there's some belief among Muslims that Muhammad ascended to heaven or something like that, even though they think they know he's dead from this spot. So it's been a very holy site. In three religions, this is considered a holy site per se in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam last. And so that's why it's a point of controversy. Now, let me tell you something. If the Israelis who sort of control this site now would take bulldozers in there and bulldoze this to the ground, you would see a conflagration like you've never seen before, and they know that. And the truth is, probably most Israelis could care less about that one way or the other because they're not observant Jews as such. But many of them are. And so there's all kind of facts. But um, this is what this is the these are uh, this incursion or this invasion of Israel, whatever you want to call it, attack on Israel last week was the El Aqsa incursion. It was about this because apparently some Jew went up on this temple mountain and prayed there and they consider that an abomination. I've been up on you know I Judy and I have been up on in fact I took this picture standing right in front of this on this platform that was similar to what Solomon's Temple's platform would be like. It's a very elaborate thing. There wasn't anybody there that day that was worshiping or anything like that that I could see that we were there. But that's what it looks like from the top. There's what it looks like from the other side of the valley without a telephoto lens. There's me and Judy. We're looking across. We're standing at the Mount of Olives looking across at this um, dome in in the city of Jerusalem. So anyway... I don't, I'm not an expert on Israel. I've only been there once. And, uh, but I can observe a few things, whether they're altogether accurate or not. I can tell you some, a few things that I saw, but I want to talk to you this morning uh, about Israel and the promises to Abraham. Because a lot of what's going on, not only right now there in all this trouble, but ha- in the past has to do with the promises that God made to Abraham. So, I can't deal with all the political stuff. Well, I can, but you wouldn't be interested in that particularly. But I can teach you what the Bible says about this subject. And I've got two or three sermons that I'd like to do on this. Next week, I want to talk about are the Jews God's chosen people today? That subject. Where where did Jews and Arabs come from? Well, the Bible tells me where Jews and Arabs came from and what the history of that is. It tells me about the promises God made to this man, Abraham, about this land. We just looked at this in our study of Genesis here in the last couple of years, but we're going to go back over some of this today with you because a lot of the controversy stems from this. A lot of the misunderstanding around the world and in particular in the United States comes from a misunderstanding of these promises. 
Greg Laurie, for example, he's just one of hundreds probably, is a pretty prominent evangelical speaker at a mega church. And he had an article last week in a couple of the magazines basically saying that what you're seeing unfolding in Israel is the fulfillment of pro- biblical prophecy right before your very eyes. That was his statement, which is simply not true. Okay, but it's believed by lot, and there may be some of the day, you today that are going to be upset by what I got to say. All I can say to you is just think about what I'm saying in reference to the Bible. Read these Bible verses, see what the conclusion is. But I will tell you this: that dispensational premillennialism, which is what this is founded upon, the idea that Christ is going to return to the earth to this site where that temple is and establish his kingdom on the earth. There's going to be a literal kingdom of Israel. Israel's going to be restored. All the Jews are going to be miraculously saved and all that during a millennium, a thousand years on the earth. All of that is a relatively new doctrine developed in the late 1800s, early 1900s by American Protestants. Did not exist before that. In fact, around the world is still a minority belief, but in America, it seems like that's what everybody believes and what the media says, but that simply isn't the case historically. And so what we need to do, though, is people that believe what the Bible says, which I know that you are, look at what the Bible does say about this and then try to apply it to what we think and change our mind if we need to about this. But let's go to Genesis chapter 12. This is, besides a couple early things in the Bible, this is the pivotal verse in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole Bible revolves around these verses and a couple of parallel verses in Genesis 17 and 22, where God told Abram, who later becomes Abraham, who was living in in what we would now call Iraq, and then he went north from there to uh, Haran, The Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. There's the land. But we know later the land that he's talking about is what we now call Palestine or Israel. By the way, the word word Palestine was invented much later after Christ's time by the the Romans or somebody to indicate they, they wanted to take away the name Israel. They wanted to get rid of that. So they called it Palestine, which comes from the word Philistine. They consider it to be the land of the Philistines. Okay? But I'm not sure that was true either. But that's politics for you. You should have skept- you should be skeptical of what politicians say and do. Is this a revelation? Will I get canceled for saying be skeptical of what politicians say and do? They have their reasons. But the land is what we now call Palestine, and that would include Israel. I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth, uh, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now then, uh, a little bit later in chapter 17, he says, and in your seed shall all nations be blessed. Paul says in Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians 3, that this seed is Christ. In your seed, or in you, he's saying here, that's Christ. Not the nation of Israel, not the Jews, not the people of Israel, but the New Testament says, by the inspired apostle, that Christ is the seed that's going to bless all nations. Not just the Jews, but all nations. Okay, so that's the promises to Abraham. Now, uh, he says, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll establish my covenant between me and you for the after you and their generations have been everlasting covenant to be your God and your descendants of you. I'll give you and your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, 
and I will be their God. I want to talk about what that everlasting possession means and what this is saying. But that's the promise God made to Abraham. That the land on which he was walking, who didn't own anything except a grave for his wife, was the land that God was going to give his descendants. Now when you look at this, made this chart a while back, you have three promises here. of The land, a nation, and a seed. I can print this out for you if you'd like, but you find, you can see how it's broken down. We've used this for a class. You have basically the Old Testament is talking about the land and nation promises. How God gave them the land, how they went into Egypt, came back, they received the land, and then the nation of Israel was formed at Mount Sinai when they were given the law. The nation of Israel was formed. Even before they had the land, they were a nation. And they went into the land and possessed it. And that's the history then of, of receiving the land and losing the land is really the history of the Old Testament. Then there's a period of silence of 400 years. And then we see the seed promise being fulfilled where God brings Christ into the world and that's fulfilled in the New Testament. So these three promises take up the whole Bible. That's why I said they were the most important verses in the entire Bible because you can lay out a chart and you can see the whole Bible is encompassing what he has to say here. Now, we're, only, we're not going to talk about all that today. But I want you to take a look at this specific promise about the land today, not about the nation or the seed quite yet. We'll get to that. But here he says, I'm going to go back to this idea when God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, I may have said 17 before, I think it's probably 15, and 17 has another whole promise. But he, he Abraham says, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How am I going to know what this means. Well, here's what happened then, historically. He tells them that you're going to sojourn and be afflicted. Your your descendants are going to sojourn and be afflicted in a foreign land. That's Egypt. After 400 years, they're going to return here. In the fourth generation, they're going to return. You can look at Exodus, he lists the generations. In the fourth generation, they're going to come up out of Egypt. Abraham will be long dead by then. But he said, this is a promise I'm making to you, Abraham. Abraham believed him and it was kind of for righteousness. And then, But he said the land could not be possessed until the wickedness of the Amorite was full. In other words, at the time that Abraham was given this promise, the people living in the land, although they were not Jews per se, nobody was a Jew then, not even Abraham was a Jew then. That's crazy, you think, but it's not crazy. Okay, Abraham was not a Jew because he was not of the tribe of Judah, all right? Abraham was just Abraham. He's the father of all the faithful. And God told him that the people around him were not wicked enough for me to destroy. But in four generations, they will be wicked enough. And when I bring the people out of Egypt, I'm going to paraphrase what God is saying here, then they will be wicked enough and you can destroy them and take their land. And that's exactly what happened under Joshua. The, pe- the, the people were wicked. God told Joshua and the armies to destroy the people of the land and take possession of it because God gave it to Abraham as a possession. And so uh, that's how he would know. Now, uh, in Genesis 15, it says, On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. The river of Egypt is not, as many premillennialists say, the Nile River. That's not what anybody historically thought that was. You won't read Bible commentators who think it's that. They say it's the Wadi El Arish, a river between Egypt and what we now know as Israel. That's the river of Egypt. It's called the Brook of Egypt in many places in historic historical texts. 
to the river Euphrates. This is the land I'm going to give you, Abraham. So here's a map, first of all, showing the 12 tribes of Israel when they finally conquered the land at the time of Joshua. On the left, can you see that? You see the extent from over here. And you see, let me get my digital pointer here. This is the river of Egypt right here. This is the Wadi El Arish. And then the, the uh, Euphrates River is over here. But this is the land that was conquered uh, by Joshua. Over here you see more specifically the river of Egypt. And then you see the great river over here on this side. And you see then this, this is the extent of the, of the nation of Israel at some point. Now when you look a little further, I'll show you another map in just a moment. But the premillennialists today, like Greg Laurie and Hal Lindsey, the great late, great late great planet Earth and all that stuff, they will tell you that the Jews never received the whole land. They never received this land. And since the Jews never received this land, that promise is still in the future. God wanted to give it to them, but he couldn't give it to them. And so that's still in the future. And that's why they keep saying that we've got to go over there and help the Jews conquer this land, take it away from the Arabs, because... The promise was never fulfilled. That's the basis of all of this. Well, was it? Did God fulfill his promise to, to Abraham to give him this, his descendants this land? Well, notice what Joshua said. I trust Joshua more than Greg Laurie or Hal Lindsey, okay? And all those fellows. He says, so the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel all came to pass. That's repeated twice in the book of Joshua. So what do you think? Do you think God gave them the land he promised to Abraham or not? Well, now if you're a premillennialist, you don't. Otherwise, you wouldn't be calling for us to go back and take the land away from the, from the Palestinians because it belongs to the Jews because God never fulfilled the promise. They're still waiting for the Messiah to come to fulfill that promise. I got news for him. He's already come. No, he's going to come again. Well, okay, he did what he wanted to do. Now, now look at this says. Here's what First King says in addition to that. Israel received all the land. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. There's that river Egypt. And they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That Wadi El-Arish is right around where Gaza is right now between Israel and Egypt. Same border, basically. That's the southern border that, that the Egyptians don't want the people from Gaza to flee south into Egypt. They don't want them. Even though they're Arabs, they want them to stay there. And so they, that's the same general border, as far as I, I know from looking at maps. Solomon reigned. So here's a picture of Solomon's kingdom. Solomon's kingdom was even bigger than the one that Joshua had. And you see that it does go. Here's two different maps. These are supposed to be essentially the same. Solomon goes all the way over here. Toward, toward the river Euphrates. And you see it on this one, all the way over here. Not just right here in this area. Solomon's empire extended all these nations that gave him tribute and were under his service in the time of Solomon. So it was a bigger kingdom. And so God even gave them more almost than he promised he was going to give them at the time of Solomon. And had they obeyed the Lord, they would have kept this land. But they did not obey the Lord. So here's something you need to remember when talking about Israel and the land of the land of Israel and, and the promises. That receiving the land as a promise to Abraham was unconditional. God said to Abraham, Your seed are going to receive this land. That was unconditional. That was going to happen. 
But retaining the land was conditional. He could give it to them, but would they retain it? Well, you know what? Retaining it depended upon whether they were obedient to him. And the problem is, the Israelites were not obedient to God. He was patient for hundreds of years. Finally, he said, I've had enough. Can't take it anymore. I've tried, I've sent my prophets from morning to evening and I'm done. You won't listen to me. So he came and took them out of the land by the hand of the Assyrians first and the Babylonians and just destroyed it all. Deuteronomy 28. I mentioned on radio this morning. I encourage the people listening to the radio show. Go and read Deuteronomy 28 through 30 today. If you want to know about some of this stuff that's going on, read what God said he would do. First, he said, if you keep my word, I'll paraphrase, I will give you so much blessing you will not be able to hold it. You will become a powerful nation, an example to all the other nations. You'll have more than heart could desire. I will always protect you if you will obey me and keep my law that I've given you. And we see he did that for many many times. He said, on the other hand, notice that I set before you life and death today in these two chapters. Death is that if you do not obey me, I will bring pestilence upon you. I'll bring war. I'll bring disease. I'll bring, he lists so many curses he's going to bring upon them. And I will drive you from this land and give it to somebody else. If you don't obey me, it shall come to pass in Deuteronomy 28, 15, that if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, and there's so much before this, I just cut it out, to observe carefully all his commandments and the statutes which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and upon your descendants forever. This is the same chapter he says that you will become a curse and a byword in all the nations which I drive you. All over the world he says that Jews have become a curse and a byword if they don't obey him. They'll be driven, they'll be scattered, and everybody will hate them. Folks, that's in the Old Testament. That's what God said he would do to the Jews if they didn't obey him. Pleasant? Oh, it's, very, it's horrible. It's unpleasant. But that's what God said he would do, and it would, it would be forever. Now, I want you to remember that, because if the land belonged to Abraham forever, guess who the curses belong to forever? The curses last as long as the promise to Abraham, forever. Same word. Makes you think about it. We'll come back to that. Just hold on for a minute. And so receiving land was unconditional, but retaining the land was conditioned upon their obedience. But if your heart turns away, he says, so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today, God says, that you shall surely perish you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. You'll not prolong your days in that land, even though I'm going to give it to you, if you do not obey me and you worship other gods. And still back in Deuteronomy 30, now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. I didn't, I changed points. Let me just make sure we get... Didn't stop for a moment there. He also says something else in that chapter. Only he says, I'm going to drive you from this land. And you become a curse and a Bible. But he says, now, 
A certain portion of you, a remnant, he calls him later on in other verses. We haven't got time to pursue that. But a remnant is going to hear him in Babylon. They're going to respond to him. Those are the ones that Ezekiel's been teaching and working with and Daniel. They're going to hear my voice. He said that when you in captivity desire to return to me, I will hear you. And if you call to mind my commandments among all the nations which the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So God says, yes, I'm going to drive you out of here because this will be, I'm going to curse you forever. He says, if some of you in captivity desire to return to me and you follow me with all your heart, I'll bring you back and put you back in the land. Now, what, what premillennialists say is that that never has happened yet. That's what they're waiting for to happen when the Messiah comes at the end of time for him to gather all the Jews back to the land. Some of them say, no, it's not that. In 1948, this happened. This happened in 1948 when the UN set up a mandate and let all the Jews return to Israel after the Second World War and the Holocaust, then 1948, that's when this verse was fulfilled. Both of those are wrong. According to the Bible, they're wrong. Because this promise that I'll bring you back into the land was fulfilled in Bible times. So there's no more looking forward to a time in the future to fulfill this promise because God already fulfilled it in the Old Testament. And you find that, for example, in the book of Nehemiah. Or Nehemiah in captivity hears about the, uh, the, the land of uh, Jerusalem being in ruins and he wants to go back to the land and he goes going to go before the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to ask him if he can go back. And so this is prayer. He reminds God of this promise. This very promise Nehemiah reminds God of that you said you would let us go back even though you cast us to the furthest parts of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to my place. He, he says... Nehemiah says, I'm reminding you of this promise, God. Let us go back. And you read the book of Nehemiah and you see that God does let him go back. So this promise that God made that he would let them come back is not some future promise. It wasn't fulfilled in 1948 or won't be fulfilled in some future time. It was fulfilled in the time of Nehemiah. You even you see even in 2 Chronicles 36, which is a historical account of these events. You see now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, 2 Chronicles 36, 22. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Another prophet prophesied about him coming back, Jeremiah. That the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his, all his kingdoms. Also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Because see, the other had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The Babylonians before him had destroyed the whole temple and the city of Jerusalem. There was nothing there for the Jews. But God said, I'll let you come back. Okay, well, here's here's being fulfilled on the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. Who is it among you? Among all, who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And so in the, you have a reading in Haggai. Whole book of Haggai is about this. Oh no, this promise hasn't been fulfilled. No, the whole book of Haggai, for one, is all about the Jews returning to the land to rebuild the temple. Then you have the book of Nehemiah, they returned and built the walls of the city. In Haggai, God is, and Haggai is told to tell the people, uh, I won't read all of this, 
Uh, but he said, the people say in their heart, well, it's not yet time to rebuild the temple. We're back in Jerusalem. Yeah, we know we're back here. But it's not yet time to rebuild the temple. So God, then the word of the Lord came to Hag, by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple of, temple to lie in ruins? I mean, they're there so long that God says, you built yourselves nice paneled houses. Where's my temple? So you can't tell me the Jews didn't go back by the command of God and weren't commanded to rebuild his temple for some future date to come because here he says they should have done it in the days of Haggai. That's what the book is about. So the upshot of all this for sake of time is that the land promised, uh, the land prop, I should say the land promise was fulfilled in Bible times. All right. I'm just going to try to correct this right now. You know, when you're this old, you can't wait to do stuff in the future. Better do it now. The land promise was fulfilled in Bible times. It is not applicable today. God fulfilled this promise. There is no promise for the Jews to return to Israel at some future date. Nor was that, nor was that promise fulfilled in 1948. Yes, some of the Jews went back to Israel. Many did not go back. They established a nation which we'll see is not the ancient nation of Israel but another nation. And I personally, I'm glad they have a home. I'm glad there's a homeland for it, for the Jews after the Holocaust to go back to. I'm glad they can do that. Having been there, I'm glad. I, I saw many things I loved and enjoyed, many things I didn't enjoy being there, didn't like, based on the gospel. But that's probably true of every place. Now, here's the question you may be asking. Well, Mike, I thought you said, though, you're saying this has been fulfilled. I thought you said that this promise of this land was forever to the Jews. All right. Wasn't Israel given the land forever? Well, it depends on what you mean by forever. What does the word mean? You know, when you do any kind of definitions and propositions you put out there, you have to understand what the words mean in the way that they're used by the person who spoke them. So he said in Genesis 17, 8, it's true. I will give you, Abraham, this land as an everlasting possession. Same word for forever in Hebrew. All right, what's the word mean? It is holam, some variation. I can't pronounce it properly, probably. And it means time out of mind, past or future, just out into the future. It means eternity in practical terms, always. Now, eternity. Do you think the Jews have been given the land of Canaan for eternity? Even after God destroys the earth, do you think they're given this? Can't mean that in this case, Okay. So right away we can eliminate one of the meanings of this word. Ancient times, continuance, eternal, long, la long lasting, a long time or of long duration. Now I will tell you what this word means. It means of long duration or a long time or lasting. Many people who commented on this before millennialism said it meant until the end of the age. That's what it means. Forever means until the end of the age, which it means in the New Testament too. So the word can be used both of unlimited duration, can be that, or can mean a long cycle or an age. That's what the lexicons say the word can mean. How do you know? Well, you have to look at the whole context of everything. Now, let me give you a problem, a problem with this. For those who beat on the table and say, this says forever, it says forever, the Jews will always have this land. So in 1948, they were given, they're never going to get rid of it. We got to help, the, keep, help them keep the heirs from taking it back because it says forever. They pound on the table about the word forever. Here's some other things the Old Testament says are forever or everlasting. Well, the Old Covenant was said to be forever. 
Is the old covenant forever? Why, he says in Hebrews, it says that in Exodus 31, it was to be everlasting for you and your people. Well, in Hebrews, I should say Hebrews, not H-E-R, should say H-E-B. Oh, let's do the same thing again. My bell checker doesn't catch those kind of things because her is a word. But uh, anyway, in Hebrews 7, 11 basically says that the old covenant has been taken away. It lasted forever until the end of the age. So when the age of the Jews was done, it was taken away. Incense. The covenant of incense was to be forever. Is that true? All these Baptist churches you know that preach about this everlasting covenant, are they burning incense today in their worship assemblies as a solemn memorial to God? Are they burning the exact incense that was in the temple? They don't believe that. But they're contradicting what they say it means about the land. Now I'll tell you this, I believe in this incense. We practice this incense in our temple. The book of Revelation says, figuratively speaking, that the incense in the temple was the prayers of the saints going up before God. So since we're in the figurative temple of the Lord, the church, the fulfillment of the temple promises, when our prayers go up, we're offering incense to God as a sweet, sweet savor. So I believe in this incense. They don't because they don't, they think it's literal incense, but they don't offer it. But it says it was forever. What, what about Sabbath observance? Forever. Well, I keep the Sabbath. I have rest in Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews says. The Sabbath observance, the rest, is given to me in the new land, in the land, by God, as I rest in Christ. And there's another Sabbath, even that's coming for me, of rest. What about circumcision? <laughs> so many so many now ultra-progressive Baptists believe that's genital mutilation. I know they don't believe in circumcision, but this ordinance was said to be forever. Except that God says in Galatians 5 that circumcision avails nothing. Physical circumcision in the Old Testament, which was a forever ordinance, everlasting ordinance, was done away at the end of the age. And now, but see, you and I who are Christians, I believe in circumcision today. Not physical circumcision. But the book of Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 says that just like circumcision was a seal of God's promise to the Hebrews to be his people, so baptism is to the new. It's a circumcision made without hands. So if you've been baptized into Christ, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, a spiritual circumcision, which will last forever, you see. And what about the curse on Israel for disobedience? Well, wait a minute. I thought that got the land forever. Well, the curse was forever too, which means that God would drive them. What that curse says is God would drive them from the uh, Israel and they'd be a curse and a byword among the nations. Think about what that means. So all those things are everlasting. So was Israel given the land forever? You know, the Jews didn't possess the land for 70 years. How's that forever? In the Old Testament, they lost it for 70 years. How, how about that? 2,000 years from AD 70 almost to 2020 to 1948. Almost 2,000 years they didn't have it at all. It was possessed by Arabs or other people. Well, I thought they were going to have it forever. Why does the forever get to start again in 1948? See, they didn't have it forever from the time of Christ. We're going to come back to that real quickly. I know our time's But does everlasting mean forever into eternity or will destruction of the earth end it? I thought forever was forever. That's what they'll tell you. 
See, that's not using words carefully enough. They mean something. And you can interpret the word forever in the context of the whole scripture, not just a theory you have about the end of time. Now, here's the problem. And we're going to close with this. I know it's late. Blame Steve. He led songs this morning. So. Jesus said that the hope of the nation of Israel would become desolate in his lifetime. You know, when you get to the book of Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi is not a pleasant book. The Jews have come back into the land, just like God said they would. And they've drifted again, not, not into idolatry, but into apathy and materialism. And they've turned away from God. They, that, that's where Malachi says, will, will a man rob God? They become covetous and greedy and selfish. They had become destructive to their neighbors. And basically, the last word in the book of Malachi is the word curse. Did you know that? The last word in the Old Testament is the word curse. Because God basically is saying there, he, Malachi, if you read it, is basically saying, I'm done with you people. I'm not sending any more prophets until Elijah comes. Well, who's that? Christ said Elijah was John the Baptist. So from the time of the book of Malachi, God gave up on Israel and sending prophets for 400 years. And then finally, he sends John the Baptist who announces Christ. He was done with them as a nation. And here, Jesus says, woe to you. This is Matt. I don't have it here. This is Matthew 23, verse 29, beginning. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, the leaders of the Jews, because you build tombs of the prophets Adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. He's saying, you're kidding yourself. Therefore, you're a witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. What's he mean by that? What he means is not only did you and your ancestors kill the prophets, but you're about to kill me, who is the greatest of all the prophets. You're about to kill me. Fill it up. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? You think these are God's chosen people that God's going to bless forever? As Jews in the land of Israel with the temple? No. Therefore, in verse 34, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes, some of them you kill and crucify, some you scourge in your synagogues, persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I'm about to bring the blood of all these murdered victims upon you. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, not the generation of 1948 or 2023 or whatever, the generation who's staying there with Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those who were sent to her. How often I would gather you and your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. He's taking away the promises he gave through Abraham of a physical kingdom to them. He's taking it away. The only hope that they're going to have is in him because he says, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're going to see me as the Messiah. That's who, how you're going to be saved. Now, real quickly, because that ends this promise there to the Jews of the land and of, as being a nation in the land. You can't see this. I know I'll give this to you later. Here's Farrell Jenkins, a professor of mine, put this chart together because people say, well, still the land, still the nation of Israel. It's called Israel. 
But the biblical nation of Israel was established under the law of Moses. Let me tell you something. The modern nation of Israel is not established under the law of Moses. They have their own constitution, their own set of laws. Some of them are like the laws of Moses. Most of some are not. They are a secular state run as often as not by secular people. Of course, so were the Jews to some degree, but they're, it's no, they're no longer under Moses at all. They had a king in Israel. Was king that followed Saul, David, and Solomon. And this line continued until Jeconiah. And God said in Jeremiah 22 that after Jeconiah, none of his descendants could sit on the throne in Jerusalem and prosper. So even if they were to restore some kind of a king in Jerusalem today, the prophet Jeremiah said that that king could not prosper in Jerusalem. Serving in Jerusalem. We have a king. Of the line of David, but he's not certain, he's not living in Jerusalem. He's not the king in Jerusalem. He's the king in heaven over all the earth. We got too much to go into there. They would possess all the territory promised to Abraham. Well, they only possess a small part of that territory today. And they're fighting to retain that territory today. But they've never, they've always possessed only a small portion of that territory. Even the original nation of Israel in 1948 had a small fraction of what was what was given to to Joshua, and especially what was given to Solomon. They had a central place of worship, the temple. There's no temple today. There can be no sacrifices. It would cause World War III to try to begin the sacrifices again there. They had priests of the tribe of Levi. There are no priests. The priesthood's been changed by the New Testament. I don't know how these good Protestant, Baptists, and other religious people can believe they're going to somehow restore the priesthood of, of Aaron. That's been taken away. It's an inferior priesthood. Yet they want to restore this priesthood to make the nation of Israel. Animal sacrifice were offered. I hate, I ventured, I hate to think how many of these Jews in the land of Palestine today are vegans and don't believe in animal sacrifice. I just love to see that number, given that they are so progressive in their politics. I just like to see that number sometime. But they don't have any animal sacrifices. Nor are the, the tribes are identifiable. The day the tribes are all mixed. And there's no real certain tribal identity in it. So the, the modern nation of Israel is not the biblical nation of Israel. It's the nation of Israel, but it's not the biblical nation of Israel. The prophecies about the nation of Israel have been fulfilled in New Testament in Old and New Testament times, not today. Now, that doesn't mean, none of that means that we should dis... I'm very much against any kind of anti-Semitic fervor. I I see no reason at all for Christians to have any anti, uh, antagonism toward the Jews. These are God's people in that sense. They are descendants of Abraham. They are the relatives of Jesus Christ, my Savior. And there's no reason for you to be antagonistic toward them. Yes, many of them are antagonistic and they do not like you. I know from what, being in Israel around them, they don't like Gentiles at all. That gives me no right as a follower of Christ to dislike or have any hatred or antipathy toward them or want any harm to come to them. And so if you want to support the nation of Israel or any Jews, you're welcome to do so. And I think that probably, given all the all the ins and outs of this whole thing, you probably should support them in their fight against these madmen that they're against over there. That'd be my opinion. Because they, they have some connection with the biblical understanding of humanity and of rights and of justice and morality. Whereas I don't think the followers of the Quran do. Okay. 
Not my observation, for the most part. So there's something to be said about this, but but you don't have to support them based on some biblical prophecy. That's my point. You can support them on other reasons. Biblical prophecy stands on its own. And by that I mean, because even Paul very instructive that you do not have a right to disparage Israel in the Old Testament, the people of God that way. So you be careful about that, what you do, what you do and think. Don't be led astray the other direction. All right. Our time is too far gone. I apologize for speaking so long. Um, but I wanted to get that in next week, the Lord willing. I would like to talk about are the Jews God's chosen people today? Okay. Something like that. Are the Jews God's chosen people? What does the Bible say about that? Give you opinions, but I want to try to go and see some scriptures in the Bible that talk about that. And then you can, now, many of you may not agree with what I said today. That's fine. Uh, we can talk about that, but I do want you to consider those scriptures and what they may mean. And this is a big subject. We've shaved off one little tiny corner of the subject of Bible prophecy and premillennialism, and I know that. I'm not trying to say it's an all-inclusive course on that. It's just one little corner of it. But we'll try to do more later on. Thank you so much for listening. And this morning as we close, we're going to uh, sing this song that our brother selected, number 31, Almost Persuaded, as an encouragement to you to obey the gospel of Christ. If we can help you this morning by baptizing you to Christ or by praying with you about a sin, you come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.